Alumni Audio Lab. I am Doris Obrecht and you are listening to Alumni Audio Lab, a bi-monthly podcast from the OEAD. This is the Austrian Agency for International Mobility and Cooperation in Education, Science and Research. In this podcast, I talk with alumni of the OEAD who have all studied or done research in Austria. We talk about their life, their research, their backgrounds and also about current events and developments. This is episode number 26. And my guest today is, from what I have read before, a real power woman. So I am happy to introduce to you Sarah Helen Kavieza from Uganda. Sarah started with a bachelor's degree in biology and chemistry at the University of Makarere in Uganda. Two years later, she came to Austria for a master's program at the University of Natural Resources, BOKU, in agriculture, which is successfully completed. This was in 2005, and now, nearly 15 years later, <laughs> <laughs> Sarah is just about finalizing her PhD on conservation agriculture in a region in mid-northern Uganda, also at BOKU, at the Center for Development Research, CDR. Sarah is a scholarship holder of APEAR, which is the Austrian Partnership Program in Higher Education and Research for Development, a program of the Austrian Development Corporation. But that's not all about her. Sarah is also director of Arosha Uganda, a conservation organization affiliated to Arosha International. We will talk about it later. Sarah, I'm really happy that you're <laughs> here today. Thank you for coming. Thank you. It's a pleasure as well to be here. Thank you. So as far as I know, you are waiting for your defense right now. Yes. I am. <laughs> how, how does it feel to be so close? Well, to it's um, it's a good feeling because it's a you've, you look back at all the years that you've spent writing up things, and so it comes with relief, with joy, but also with an expectation of a new future, new territories, new works. Yes, <laughs> it's a good feeling. Did these three years fulfill your expectations? Yes, it did more than did, because before the PhD, you're working. I was. You're really just working, and I always looked forward to doing a PhD. And it's so it's a fulfillment, it brings a satisfaction <laughs> of accomplishment. So it's quite nice, yes. It was more than 10 years between your master and yes, PhD. Yes, why? Yes, um, I think when I finished the mountain forestry, I had this thing that I had gained a lot of knowledge from Austria. And I think it was my first country to come to alone by myself. I can remember very clearly, I used to live in the ninth district, not far from the ORD. And so when I finished, I looked forward to going back and putting into practice what I had gained from Austria. It was a rich ex experience for me, new techniques, new technology, new knowledge. And I looked at my country and where Austria is, and I saw a very huge gap. And I thought, well, if I applied the knowledge, it can bring us to a certain level. And so during the 10 years between uh, after finishing and coming back, I was just busy applying what I had learned. And I must say that when I returned, I was very exhausted from the work in Uganda. So, And Austria is like the place that, you, that, at least for me, it felt like home. You know, if you've been to a place and then you come back 10 years afterwards, it's a very good feeling because you have good memories, you have some friends that you relate with, and it's the same university lecturers, some of them are the same. And so it was um, a very good experience. Because, you know, after applying, uh, after learning from the university, you have gained a lot of academic knowledge, you have a lot of theories, some small practices. And so it, it was good for me to try and see what it looks like in practice. Yes, very fulfilling for me. 
Yes. Has Austria changed in these 10 years? Not. Yes, it has in one way or the other, but it has also remained the same and I'm happy it's maintaining its tradition, the same small old streets with the, <laughs> the antiques. I, I just love Austria. It has kept its place because it's a very small, prestigious um, country. And I'm just happy that it has kept its tradition, its history really well kept. And I think it's an example to the rest of the world. As you already started talking about your PhD, what was your research about? My research was about conservation agriculture. And I chose to do conservation agriculture because in Uganda, Uganda is an agricultural country. We produce a lot of food, a lot of cash crops, for example, coffee, some cotton, some tea. And also most of the people, I think over 60% of the population depends on agriculture. I am also a farmer. I think you can call me a remote farmer. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, I think for me, it, it's about seeing the need what the need is and trying to fulfill a gap. So I chose conservation agriculture because I like farming. To I sit on the National Climate Smart Agriculture Task Force in the Ministry of Agriculture, and that gave me an opportunity to see what farmers are doing in their small gardens and what sort of information they are lacking. So I thought that by doing that PhD, first of all, it's something that I understood because I've seen it in practice. I've monitored projects. I've also tried it myself. And so it, it's a very good connect between the knowledge uh, that is academic, but also the practice. And so my research was about adoption of conservation agriculture. Why do farmers need to take it up? How can they take it up? And anyway, conservation agriculture is something that has been around for ages on other continents. It started, I think, in the 1930s in, in the Americas. But then on the African continent, it hasn't taken much root. For example, the, the whole of Africa, out of the entire share of conservation agriculture in the world. Africa is about 3%. You know, the rest is being done in Brazil, China, Australia, and, and other countries. And yet, we, we are doing agriculture. The farmers are there. People are there doing their farming. But the question is, why are farmers not taking up conservation agriculture? Because it makes a lot of sense. You don't have to, you don't need all these very big machines if you have small farms and recent research also shows that small farms give better returns so for me it was an intrigue to see mm -hmm. something that is supposed to be working but it is not being taken up so my research has to do with developing effective strategies for taking up conservation agriculture by smallholder farmers what was your research area i said before it is in mid-northern uganda yes my site uh, is mid-northern uganda That is um, the Lango region. I chose three districts, Lira, Dokolo, and Alibutong in the mid, mid of northern Uganda. It was quite interesting for me because I'd been reading that farmers there do not do agriculture. But breaching on the ground, I found that farmers are actually practicing conservation agriculture there. And I chose the area because there's hardly a lot of information written about um, Lango region. And I remember my colleagues asking me, why are you going so far away? There's not so much and all that. But for me, it's unlike the rest of Uganda. This region has not received a lot of attention, and yet it has a number of NGOs. So I wanted to see exactly what is happening on the ground, what is really there. And it's an area that is I'm not used to. I've never, I had never been there. I don't speak the language. 
it was totally new. I think I like adventure. <laughs> I <laughs> really do. So. <laughs> yes, I do. And road coverage in some of those districts is, I think, 19%. But it was for me, it was adventure to try and go find the path. And there is no public transport. But I was following conservation agriculture. I wanted to see what is exactly going on. And what I found out is quite interesting. Farmers know what to do. And they're doing what they can with whatever they have. Yes, so that's why I chose that region, because there's not so much written about it. Um, but the farmers are very enthusiastic. They grow cotton, they grow sunflower, they grow cereals. It's a, it, it grows a number of cereals. It, I can say that it's a grain basket for that region. There is Sudan in the neighborhood, so it has a huge potential of feeding um, the refugees coming from there, because I think you know that we have we host a number of refugees, I think about 2 million mm-hmm. are close to that region. And it's a gateway to Sudan and all those neighboring countries, Congo and so on and so forth. So conservation agriculture has a lot of potential in the region because farmers are gaining ground. You know, there used to be a war, I think, in the last 20 years. There was conflict. So there's a number of factors <laughs> affecting the people of Lango region. Very friendly people, very hardworking, different social context. But I think conservation agriculture fits well to what they are doing because they love to work hard. Mm-hmm. And conservation agriculture is um, not for the fainted, especially if you're from a developing region where you don't have um, appropriate tools yet, or the social the social and gender context is a little bit different. For example, uh, when I was interviewing <laughs> some of the people, the men and the women, some of the farmers, I just realized that it was only the men talking. And then I thought, the women are many, but they're not talking. So when mm-hmm. I separated them, and mm-hmm. then they started talking, I just discovered there are all those hidden social um, expectations. Structures. Yeah, like if you talk in front of men, you, you're seen as somebody who's maybe rebellious and that sort of thing. So you have to pretend and be shy, but really inside you, it's a different story. And so I was looking at that at the social background and conservation agriculture and how it might affect the uptake of the technology. In a few words, what is the difference between conservation agriculture and Mm -hmm. traditional agriculture? Yes, conservation agriculture has three principles. We have minimum tillage, Mm -hmm. whereas in conventional agriculture, the traditional agriculture, the agriculture that I grew up with, we open up the land Mm -hmm. with the horse out. Digging really deep. deep, You you, you wake up in the morning and just cut, first of all, slash the ground and then go back with a hole and dig it up and turn the soil invert it. But in conservation agriculture we have what we call permanent planting stations or the people in northern Uganda call them basins. Mm -hmm. So you open up a hole where you put all your seeds and that is the place where you come back to in the following seasons. You know, it's just one small place that you open up and put your seeds and then the next and so on and so forth. Or if you don't have basins, we have what we call rip lines. Mm -hmm. So you have an animal that has an ox plow and then it just goes um, through uh, over your land, opening up a continuous trench. And then in this trench, that is where the seeds are planted. In traditional agriculture, we don't have that. You open up, whether you're going to (laughs) plant (laughs) wherever, you just open up the land because it looks neat. The soil is bare, but... (laughs) <laughs> in the conservation, conservation agriculture, it is not so. And then the other thing is that we have crop rotation and then we have a permanent, you have to maintain a permanent cover crop or you have to mulch. Mulching or planting a cover crop in some areas is common. For example, in the banana growing region, 
southwestern Uganda, central, the coffee banana region, where farmers use the banana leaves to cover their ground. So that the soil won't so dry the out. The soil will not dry out, but mm-hmm. also keep the weeds, and it also maintains fertility, composting, and so on and so forth. But in conservation agriculture, I think we take it a little bit further, where farmers grow cover crops. And these cover crops can double as uh, animal feed, but they can also be something that can be consumed by humans. And then we have, I've talked about crop rotation. Yes, crop rotation, of course, the cereals, the cereals and legumes, these have to be alternated. Yes, whereas in traditional agriculture, you can have a monocrop and then repeat it the same the next season. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to do crop rotation. So in conservation agriculture, the key thing is minimum tillage. Uh, crop rotations and maintaining uh, cover crop. But isn't that like in, when you say in the traditional um, agriculture, mm. it's the same every year? Isn't yes. the soil after three years completely yeah, out of? Out um, of, yes. And yes, that is very true. That is the thing. That is where conservation agriculture comes in. Because in conservation agriculture, if you are inverting the soil, first of all, it's like I, I remember one of the tr- when I was getting the training, one of the trainers said, if you turn the soil, in traditional agriculture, it's like getting the organisms that are supposed to live under the soil and then you up. bring them on top. And then the ones which are supposed to be up are put back um, underground. So it's like bringing fish, put it on land and you expect it to live. And mm-hmm. then you take goats and sheep and put them in water, expecting mm-hmm. them to live. And it doesn't work. Soil is a living thing. It has structure. And I know, of course, there are some advantages with inverting soil, making it loose. But then if it is over so many period, over a long period of time, then it sometimes compacts the soil. It leads to formation of hard pans, which is actually my next research. And beyond that, the hole cannot work. Beyond that, the roots cannot go deeper to get the nutrients that they need. You know, conventional agriculture destroys the soil, destroys the soil structure. It loosens it up. It causes soil erosion. And in Uganda, soil erosion is a huge problem. As you said before, it's a very complex system, the smallholder farming systems in this area. Mm. What are the main obstacles or or structures Mm. you have there? First of all, when I went there, I used three methods of collecting the data, finding out do the farmers have the knowledge, first of all. Have Have they learned about it? Have they been exposed? Because... When I was growing up, I didn't know about conservation agriculture. All I need, all I did was, you know, do the conventional plowing from morning <laughs> till evening, working so hard. And yet, with conservation agriculture, yes, the initial stage is a little bit difficult. Setting up the basins by which you have to measure, you have to have the exact measurements because okay. of crop management. You mm-hmm. know, if you have better, good spacing, then you have a good yield. But in some regions today, we still have farmers broadcasting seeds, like just throw <laughs> them and they will grow. <laughs> Because some soils are so fertile. But because of pressures we're having to the external pressures, like climate change, variability, and all those things, things are not as they used to be. And farmers, anyway, they are already experiencing these things. So anyway, I um, went out to the field, had consultations with my colleagues with whom I sit on the task force, and then we had discussions finding out where is the need, where do we need data, because I think data in most of the African countries, data is a problem, (laughs) looking for the exact figures, where is the baseline and that sort of thing. And so I zeroed down on northern Uganda, so I went up to northern Uganda, went to the district level, tried to find out who is in charge of conservation agriculture. Is it in the policy? Is it being done? And 
talked to a number of opinion leaders, the um, extension of officers and all that. And then I went to the to the communities and I had, I think there were over 400 interviews with people asking them, have you heard about conservation agriculture? Do you practice conservation agriculture? What are some of the problems? And some of the issues that I discovered, they come in um, different categories. There are social re- reasons, there are technical reasons, there are financial reasons and, and so on and and so forth. So one of the reasons is, of course, the finances. I found out that an average farmer in northern Uganda <laughs> invests at least $20 per season. Now, with $20, can you buy seed? Can you buy fertilizer? Can you afford to buy other inputs? Can you buy better machinery? So it's a very minimal amount of money that they're investing in and yet they expect to get out a lot of yield. So if you have a minimum investment, that means you can have, you cannot afford better machinery. You cannot afford appropriate machinery. And then the other obstacle is the social the social fabric of the society, the women and men. <laughs> you find that women have to go out digging, but then the men after the produce comes out, the men will expect the women to sell the seeds and then bring it back to the men. Mm -hmm. So again, that brings that vicious cycle of of poverty. The other thing is, of course, lack of extension because you know that I think the agricultural extension system was going undergoing through some structural changes. I found out that there's hardly any extension any extension officers doing um, going around the villages and telling people, updating their information. Mm -hmm. And so the person that I talked to, one of their agriculture extension officers I talked to made me understand that it is extension services are given upon demand. That is already a, a barrier. Then the other thing is obviously the low development in the region, the poor roads. If you have road coverage of 19%, how do we expect farmers to get their produce from the garden? to the farm or to the mills. So we find a lot of loss. And so if a farmer invests a lot of manual labor in digging up basins or replines and then they have a yield, the market is a problem because they don't have the transport means. So that means that if a middleman comes, they're going to exploit them. They will buy the produce at any amount they want and then sell it back. Mm at an increased price because they don't have storage facilities. The poor road network means that they will not be able to sell. And then, of course, the other things that they're grappling with. If we don't have the basic uh, services, for example, insurance, it means that farmers sell their produce at any price, any time, anyhow. That means they don't get the maximum benefit that they expect from their produce. And then, of course, what I also found out was the breakdown of the cooperative societies. We used to have, there used to be a very vibrant cooperative, the Lango Cooperative Society. It was something that I always had when, as a child, it was very vibrant. But it was so sad during my research when I found out, when I went to what used to be the cooperative society. And so it means that if, the, if you don't have a cooperative society, it means that you're going to sell less. You cannot bulk your produce. There's lack of trust. Who will sell their produce at what price? And when everybody does as they, as they feel, as they, as they have needs. For example, one family told me that, well, as, as we get our yield from CA, if somebody comes and they want to buy from us, yes, we have to sell it as soon as possible because then maybe we can get money for school fees or we can pay the medical bills and so on and so forth. But in, um, in an ideal context, farmers would be protected. 
you know, they would have some sort of price regulation, some sort of bulking um, system of some place, some kind of storage facility where farmers can store their grain or a voucher system where they can be, um, where they can be assured of a price so that the amount of energy or resources that they invest in their farming can be realized through the profit when we were talking about, uh, as I said, protection, I'll widen it up to support. On the one hand, I've read um, com conversation <laughs> agriculture <laughs> is, is anchored in strategies in Uganda. For yes. example, the Climate Smart Agriculture yes. 2015 mm. to 25 program mm. and in the Agricultural Sector Strategic Plan of Uganda. But looking mm. at your study, this mm -hmm. studies, the mm -hmm. farmers stated mm -hmm. that there are very little programs or communication <laughs> yes. or responsibility on yes. conservation agriculture. Yes. How does this fit together yes um <laughs> you see the problem is and i think this problem goes across most of the developing countries i don't want to tie it to uganda but it's maybe a weakness in some of our institutions most of the strategies that the country puts in those beautiful documents which are really very nice they're done by projects so a project comes and it's only available for two years and then after that funding is cut or there's no continuity. So if work is being led by projects, there's little sustainability, there's little continuity, and everything is tied down to finances. So I think that is a very big problem that we have, that we see even in other countries where conservation agriculture is being done. I saw that in Nanyuki in Kenya, where farmers uh, are given, for example, information by a project, but then there's no follow-up. Mm -hmm. That would be the work of the government, for example, to give um, extension services. But now if you're operating in a context where there is no extension service or where it is broken, then it sort of frustrates the, the academia. It frustrates the research personnel who have developed this knowledge, who have come up with the exact um, data that the farmers need to work with. It's an institutional problem, and I think it's something that I wrote about and said we have to change the way we, first of all, the policy. We have to recheck our policies, and then agriculture support is needed. Whereas we have found all these climate smart agriculture options, the sustainable land management program, it is very good. Everything has been written down, but then there's the support is very small. Do the farmers know about these strategies? Do it have any <laughs> meaning for them? Uh, unfortunately, some farmers, for example, farmers who are connected to people who are exposed, for example, the farmers that are interviewed who had been trained by some organization, they would know, they would have a little bit of knowledge. But then the rural farmer, the ordinary farmer does not know. You know, I even asked, I think I remember asking a question, has a government official told you about climate change? And they said, no, I don't know that. Or I found out that some of them know too much. Uh -huh. And I asked, okay, how do you know about conservation agriculture? And then they go, oh, an organization came, they trained us, and we have all these records. They've been checking on us. They've been giving us extension services and that sort of thing. So knowledge and awareness is still something that is that, that needs to be done. Because the farmers that were practicing conservation agriculture were farmers that were taught. And in fact, when we had discussions, the f through focus group discussions, most of the farmers mentioned that, well, if you give us the knowledge, if you educate us, if you give us some sort of informal knowledge, 
we are able to do these things. It's not that we don't want to do or we don't want to do conservation agriculture. It's not that we do not see the problem with the prolonged drought, dry spells, the floods, the, com- the late coming of the rains and that sort of thing. The farmers are seeing it and they also want to know what to do. I think knowledge is very important, but also we have to facilitate that knowledge. What I mean by that is, yes, if you give somebody the knowledge that, yes, they should do conservation agriculture. Now in Uganda, we have a very young population, the youth, and there are many, they are jobless. And the land is decreasing. Well, I don't want to say that the land is decreasing, but it's being fragmented. Mm -hmm. So that means we have to apply better farming methods to still get the yield that we expect. The farming methods that were used when I was growing up are no longer (laughs) viable. It just can't work. We have to upgrade our system. But to make it interesting for the youth, we have to adopt technologies. We have to bring in the ICTs and all these things are available. If we are enabling the farmers to take them up, that is another story. Then there's also the other issue of um, the aging farmers. In northern Uganda, the f- most of the farmers that I talked to were 50 years, 40 years plus. That means they're aging and it's getting difficult to do agriculture. So we need special equipment. We need the job planters. We need the two-wheel tractors. And these are very small equipment. They're not that expensive. Or if we decided that we go in for the big machines, a machine can be shared by an entire community. For example, the farmers that I interviewed had only 800 hectares between themselves. So one machine can do that, mm-hmm. you know, so they can, we can work out a sharing option, a service that can be a machine sharing service, you know, that can be used in the, vi- in the village or in the community. But that also needs research. What sort of machine do we need? What is under the soil? What sort of plows do we need? How much fuel is used for one farm? We need to put in the GPS. We need to put in the coordinates to avoid land grabbing. It has a lot of issues, the land tenure system. Then we have some households that are female-headed. So (laughs) that also has its implications, the gender issue. Those female-headed, as you said before, households, as you said before, Women only talk when men are not in yes. the same room. Mm. Are there mm-hmm. any mm-hmm. female-headed mm-hmm. household, but mm-hmm. also female-headed um, agricultural? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, in northern Uganda, women rarely own land. Because you see, you get married into a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the woman gets married into a family, and somehow she has to depend on her husband's land. Now, the people in northern Uganda live in communities. You find a family, father, uh, a man and wife, they have children, for example, men, sorry, boys, and then they give them pieces of land. Those boys marry, and those their families are expected to farm on that land, and so on and so forth. So that means some women do not have land on their own because they did not get a share from their parents because they're expected to get married and have land elsewhere. So you find women, sometimes they have access to the land, but they cannot make a decision as to how that land is used. I interviewed women who would want to do conservation agriculture because they have seen it working. Their neighbors have taught them. If they belong to a group because they are farmer groups, they they hear these things from their fellow women and they know what is working. And they, they have a social capital. You know, they can lean on one another and support one another. But then if you're living in a family where you don't own the land, that means you don't have user rights. What the husband says is what you're going to go by. But then there also, we have another class of women who are widows. 
their husbands died so maybe fortunately they can have land but if they are aging you know that that also has another implication those sort of women have to be supported and it's easy to support them because the women are already organized they already have circles they have their groups where they are registered they're very orderly by the way <laughs> very orderly the social structure like as i said that i noticed in the focus group discussions that the women will not say much because you know they have a village chief and the chief he knows everybody and they are organized in their families so it was an advantage because i would not have seen that for example a woman says well i cannot do conservation agriculture because my husband told me that i need to plant these seeds by this amount of time and he wants it very fast and i don't even own the land but i'm the one responsible for feeding the family what do you want me to do you know i would love to do this because you know they give their reasons and then others told me yes uh, we did conservation agriculture we have built better houses because most of the uh, well especially in the rural areas people still live in huts but i came across families that had been practicing conservation agriculture and they have moved out of the mud huts they have better housing more permanent housing you know and they say that that development came from conservation agriculture from their crops from better soils You're a very highly educated academic. Sometimes in poorer or not so well educated communities can mm -hmm. be uh, hard to connect with the people as an <laughs> academic. Yes. How did you reach your stakeholders, the farmers? Uh, yes. Was that a problem? Very, yeah, it was. In the beginning, I think you've noticed, uh, even now when I'm talking, I'm deliberately trying to avoid the scientific terms because I know <laughs> maybe somebody out there would be interested. But then if I start mentioning conservation agriculture, um, terminologies, you know, they might lose interest. And that is what happened uh, when I went to northern Uganda. It's, uh, you know, that Uganda has, I think, over 40 languages. And now <laughs> I'm from the south. Now going to the north, you can imagine what it is. The further you go away from your, your tribe or from your location, the more difficult it gets. So one of the, <laughs> one of the things that, that I did was to get an interpreter. Fortunately, I found two women who had been trained in conservation agriculture. They could speak English and they were able to speak Langi, you know, a, a dialect of Langi in one of the regions. But in fact, I think in one of the districts, I think it was Dokolo, where one of the ladies could also not understand what her fellow people, her, you know, her fellow people could speak. But I used a number of translators in many areas. I was speaking through another person. But what helped is <laughs> being a woman with another woman. That was a big tick. And that woman who is kind of accepted because she was teaching her fellow women. She was of use to the community because many times as we just researchers, we go to communities and then collect data and then just go away. And the farmers are always asking, so you collect this information for what? And what now? What now? <laughs> what, so what, what are you going to do? But I remember because I, I said I'm a farmer myself. I remember <laughs> my own experiences. I thought, well, what would I want? I want, if I want to go, if I, if somebody comes to me, they take my time asking me, I want to know what they're going to do uh, with that information and not that i demand anything back but since they appear to know so much i would want to know can they share with me their skills and what i did in northern uganda when we collected the data i went back we shared the, the data i asked them if it was true what i was going to write and you know we went through we evaluated the data we um, had discussions and i also shared some skills that i have 
gained over the years through other things. What I probably should have mentioned at the beginning was that conservation agriculture, especially in the East African region, comes in different forms. We have something that we call um, farming God's way of foundations for farming. Mm -hmm. Those regions, most African countries, I think you have a large number of, uh, a large percentage of Christians. And in a country like Zimbabwe, you would not believe they have a lot of conservation agriculture going on. But it is not, probably not called conservation agriculture. It's called farming God's way. That was one of my <laughs> questions because oh. you wrote about that um, on the website yes. of Arusha, Uganda. Yes. So farming God's way mm -hmm. is like conservation agriculture. Yes, yes. What, what I noticed in northern Uganda, you have to be friendly if you're not. I think Ugandans are usually friendly people. And if you go to a community, you greet the people because greeting for us is so important. <laughs> greet the people and connect with the community. Then they will tell you everything, the background. They'll give you every, every piece of information that you need. And so what I found out is that because there are many Christians in the community, and if you tie something, not that you tie it, but if, it, if there's a connection between the science and their faith, then it makes sense. And this, this movement of Farming God's Way, Foundations for Farming, is a very huge movement if you read about it. Very huge movement. <laughs> Because there are people who believe that the earth was made by God and he loves it and we need to take care of it. It is not ours. We have to steward it properly, you know, according to the Bible. And I've also come across Muslims who have called it Islamic farming because according to the Quran, they, they have to maintain everything the way God wants it. And for them, if it means that their faith is important for them to take up conservation agriculture, so be it. We have high numbers of people who believe in farming God's way because they believe you have to care for the soil, you have to care for the plants, You have to care for the trees and all these things because that is their belief. And so if you go to the community and you only tell them about the science, they don't see any sense mm -hmm. because uh, for them, God is supreme. If you don't bring God in the picture, if you don't bring beliefs into their system, it doesn't work. And I know of very large movements that are doing farming God's way, that are doing conservation agriculture simply because they believe it. Not because they believe in huge machines and that sort of thing. Whereas on other continents, for example, I think in Brazil, Australia, the farmers who are doing conservation agriculture are the large farmers, are the commercial farmers, the ones who are rich, the ones who can afford the you know, huge machinery. In our context, the farmers who are doing CA are very smallholder farmers. Mm. So those are some of mm. the differences. And so I think that context is so important Social contexts are very important and we cannot ignore them because if we have a huge problem facing, for example, if there's a huge problem in a certain community, you don't have only one way to get to where you want. If it's social, so be it. If it is make technological, so be it. Because at the end of the day, what do we want? We want better soils. We want biodiversity. We want to prevent soil erosion. We want to prevent all this degradation and other losses that we are already facing anyway. One disadvantage I found in the literature was that, mm -hmm. that because you don't turn around the soil so mm -hmm. much, also mm -hmm. weeds will grow yeah. better. Yes. And mm -hmm. you said before, with mulching, it yeah. can be prevented mm -hmm. a little yes. bit, mm. but usually it leads to a mm -hmm. more use of yes. um, herbicides. So my question is, mm -hmm. is conservation yeah. agriculture yeah. and organic, mm -hmm. are they going are together, they together or not? <laughs> Yes, that's an interesting question. 
because we would expect that the people who are doing conservation agriculture are using herbicides. Unfortunately, they are not because they cannot afford it. It's simple. That doesn't mean that there are no people who are using herbicides. There are, there are those who can afford to buy the glyphosate, which, which, is, which I don't like at all. <laughs> <laughs> because you know it's the commonest and but it, it has its disadvantages but that is what is available on the market mm. and now it makes me think of other problems with those herbicides anyway organic agriculture because uganda is and is doing organic agriculture by default <laughs> you know and okay, for me yes a lot of african countries who are doing exactly this way you know? because they can't afford the yeah you cannot have toxic stuff <laughs> exactly and for me i think it's a good thing that we cannot afford the toxic stuff first of all some of those herbicides that come are fake you know they are fake and they have other they have another they have a host of their own problems so why can't we use our cover crops you know just plant our cover crops and then utilize them as fodder or turn them back into the soil for me it makes sense for us to do research on what the appropriate cover crops are so that they can produce manure we can make compost there's so much that we can do without okay with limited use of what of those of those herbicides if we mulch the weeds are going to reduce because if you cut off the supply of of light weeds will be they will be cut back they cannot grow if you mulch or if you do the cover crops they will be reduced and then the other thing the, the good thing with um conservation agriculture if farmers have appropriate equipment but that comes with knowledge that comes with research now back to the herbicides yes i know that some governments encouraging that but we all know glyphosate has been banned for example i think in europe here you don't use glyphosate so for me it doesn't make sense seeing people promoting glyphosate in uganda to if you're promoting it and you really think it is that important why not train farmers on how to use it and even the dangers because i've come across people tell them yes you apply it like this put on the i don't know if a herbicide is so toxic to you who is applying it Why are you putting you it on the it. Why, oh Yeah, you should not <laughs> eat it. Put a mask when you are applying it. That shows that it is yeah. very dangerous. In those days, we didn't have to go to the market to buy vegetables because everything was growing in the backyard. These days, it's not possible. We have to manage the land carefully. And that is what farmers need to know. We need to give them that information. Because if you have healthy soils, you have healthy people, you have healthy products. It's just a very simple <laughs> formula. Yeah, formula. But unfortunately, I think we are... We've stuck our heads in something has to be so complex and we have to, you know, fish this and that sort of thing. And I think we are losing track. For me, conservation agriculture fits in our conservation agriculture because conservation agriculture means different things to different people in different areas. You know, to the farmers that I interviewed, for them applying two principles, we took that as the base, the baseline. If somebody is doing two principles of conservation agriculture, they are doing, you know, they're doing conservation agriculture. If they're doing minimum tillage, if they're doing crop rotation, that is good enough. We can go with that and then the rest will come with time because we cannot expect everybody to get the knowledge within two, Just three trainings. Second, yes. in, yeah, they cannot do it within three trainings. Yeah. And some of the farmers, they are not early adopters. If a new technology comes in the community, because they've gone through war, they have, they have a sense of distrust. They have seen, you know, people mistreating them. So they want to see if a new technology comes, is it going to work? You know, they, they will come, they will jump on the bad wagon later when they say, ah, my neighbor did it, it's working. Those are the, the ones that we call the late adopters. So we have to give them time. Mm. But we also have to create a conducive um, 
uh, environment for them to to adopt mm -hmm. the conservation mm -hmm. agriculture. Yeah. Let's talk about Arusha Uganda a little oh. bit because <laughs> okay. you're the yes. director of this organization yes. and as you said before yes. we should think about not losing track. Arusha Uganda is working on a very community level as yes. I've seen. Yes. What is this organization about? <laughs> um, Arusha Uganda is an organization that is um, It is part of Arusha International. Arusha International is a huge uh, faith-based organization, a Christian-founded organization, and I think it, they're working in about 20 countries. Okay. I had a very wonderful privilege of starting Arusha Uganda in 2000, I think, six or seven, and I've watched it grow over these years. So Arusha Uganda does about three or four objectives. One of it is research, advocacy, community-based projects, and environmental education. And the way I structured it when I was beginning was for, for one of the reasons I saw, I first saw was that because Uganda is, we have a young population, we have one of the fastest growing populations <laughs> in the world. In, in Uganda? In Uganda, it's, it's yes. It's about 50% percent are in, under 14, in, right? Yes, in mm -hmm. fact, more than that. Wow. I saw a figure of 70 And 70% I thought, under 14 years. Yes, wow. and I thought, oh my goodness, we're giving birth every other day. So I thought, well, in a few years, we're going to have some troubles with the environment. So one of our key objective is environmental education. We do that in schools. We go to schools and we tell the children, because if you want to change a nation, I think you have, to start at you have to start at such a level. And then within maybe 10 or 20 years, you can expect to see some change. So we go to those schools and start environmental education clubs where children can grow food in sacks. Uh, we can tell them about the dangers of pesticides. We can tell them about the, um, the good thing with gardening, working with your hands, uh, working in small areas. They love to grow. Children are very good. You know, they love to grow vegetables, beans, f I don't yeah, know. It's all play fruits. for them. Yeah, it's all play <laughs> for them. And um, so we do that in schools. And then the other thing is uh, Arusha Uganda is faith-based We we are uh, not that we don't work with people of other faiths. We work with everybody, everybody. But the thing is that we we borrow our strength from from our faith, because we believe God made the earth. He loves it. He protects it. Whatever He does with it, ten or twenty years from now, or whatever. Some people think it's going to be whatever He does. We don't mind. But the issue is, we are stewards. It means we have to care for what has been entrusted to us because it doesn't belong to us. We have to care for it, for our neighbors, for our children. We have to pass on something that is worth passing on. So on that, we go to churches, we go to mosques, we go to all these faith groups and tell them. I was very surprised when I told Muslims, actually, they came to me and said, oh, we've heard about farming God's way from Zimbabwe, about, you know, it's a big movement. Can you tell us about it? For the first time, in my entire life, I stood before sheikhs. And if any woman out there knows um, this religion, you know that women and men usually it's not, a, it's not a, they, they have some rules. But I was so impressed because these men were very open. They were sheikhs, um, muftis, the very high leaders of, this, uh, of, of that religion. They called me and they were so open. All I needed to do was give them the information. And the next thing I knew, They had, I, and somebody I think helped them, they published a book called Islamic Farming. Because they said, oh, Sarah, yes, your Bible, but we have a Quran. I said, well, I've told you what I have to, whatever you do with it. But there are people who, who will cause a change just because of that. You know, just because if you have a nation that 
classifies themselves as 70% Christian, I don't know, 60% Muslim. Those are people who are gathering every Friday or Saturday or Sunday. What do you need? You need to reach masses. So why don't I give the message to whoever they listen to and that person will pass on the message. So it's a strategy mm. of passing on sustainable land management. It's a strategy of passing on <laughs> conservation agriculture and all these projects that we are doing. Yes, that is about it. And then the other thing we do is um, advocacy. Over the years when I started Arusha, I found myself traveling quite a lot. I'm talking about the connection between faith and science. In fact, I think I taught at a Bible college somewhere in between. Because you see, uh, Christian uh, people, and I'm a Christian too, sometimes we, we, we think, ah, oh, the Bible, the Bible. But if it doesn't make sense to me, I don't want anything to do with it. I have to see it in reality. So if we have climate change, if we have soil erosion, if we have uh, bad farming, is, does God say anything about it? It's a very, very simple question. So if we have climate change, does God care? So today we have what we call creation care. It's a, it's a huge course that is being offered, I think, world over, where you teach people the Bible and the environment. Creation care, what does God think about climate change, the soils, the trees, and all those things. And so it's an element of stewardship. Where, because to some people, the Bible is a very old document. It doesn't make sense. But it's a living document if we apply it to our standards today. Very, very simple. Nothing complicated, nothing hidden about it. So in brief, that is what Arusha is. We work with communities. We go to communities um, teaching about um, creation care, like I have said. We do community projects. I need to emphasize that. Community projects, because I think one of the laws and for me, as Sarah, one of the answers to the problems we have today is love. When floods come in a community, hmm, they will not go to only the Muslim, they will not only go to the Christian or to the unbeliever. We owe each other love, you know. And so I think, for me, I think that through our community projects, they go out to everybody, to the people in need but also facing the reality. For example, you've seen on our website, we have several of them. For example, the energy um, energy projects like briquettes, uh, fireless cookers. Um, we have water projects like um, biosand water filters, very cheap technologies that can be applied to make people's lives better. And there are some communities that I've seen in Uganda that believe in their religious leaders. So if there's a problem and the religious leader is the only person who will move the masses, why not? Why, why don't we use that strategy? So I think it's about using homegrown solutions. It's about adapting to the, to the context. And that is what Arusha is about. So we go to areas where there is need. I'm sure you've seen the biosand water filter. It's a very cheap technology where, um, which filters water and makes it uh, portable. People can drink it, people can use it, and we have over thousands of pieces within Kampala. Um, people can have access to clean water. And in schools too, in hospitals, it's a technology that has been around. But um, I think with most of the technologies, some of the problems we have is um, making them popular. 
in other words, uh, people taking them up. I think it's the same thing to do with agri uh, conservation agriculture. Yes, it's a good technology, but how will people take it up? How can we work together so that people know about it and they can take it up for better livelihoods or use it as an economic enterprise and that sort of thing? And we also work with women because women, <laughs> they work a lot, but they are also the managers of homes. So we have something that we call a fireless cooker. It's something that I saw in Austria, by the way, <laughs> when I was here. Yeah. <laughs> because somebody asked me, Sarah, why did you get the fireless cooker? I remember when I was here, when I was a student, and I think that is like 10, more than 10 years ago, I went to this family, and I think I babysat the child or something. And then the Oma had this yes. basket. And then I was speaking with her, and she was like, yeah, and I said, ah, okay. So when I went back to Uganda, because one of the problems we have is charcoal. It's not a problem, but 70% of all our homes in Uganda are depending on charcoal. You know, even high institutions are using firewood, they're using charcoal. It's cheap. And But with a fireless cooker, it cuts the, the time that you spend in the kitchen you put in your beans or, or matoke or whatever it is. You just have to have cook the food and then the fireless cooker does the rest. Yes, it just put it in this um, basket? insulated basket. Yes, and yes. So yeah. you had the idea from, from here? From Austria, yes. <laughs> I got the Austria from <laughs> here because, yes, it was an, an old lady that I was, uh, it was a family that I, I think I was looking after their child and I saw the Oma. Whenever we would cook the food, she would put it in the yes, basket. it was much more common it was, decades yes, ago. Yes, yes. So when I went back to Uganda, I told my colleagues about it when I started Arusha. But the thing with me as a person, I am a vision bearer. I'm not, I'm, I'm not somebody to go and then I start doing the details. So what I did was just to give them the idea. And today I'm so impressed that um, they have made a business out of it. They are training farmers and they have even improved it because the basket that I taught them to make was with papers. And today they're using pieces of cloth. They're sewing it. And in fact, we have an online shop. <laughs> It is that beautiful. Yes, we have an online shop. People can put place their orders. They can somebody can even pay for training for maybe a um, you know a community. I don't know in Lira or in Karamoja, wherever they wish. You can just go to our website <laughs> and pay for the training, and the rest will be done. And I think it is good because it brings the women together. They can chat as they are doing you know this sewing together, and they can learn from each other. It's an economic enterprise. It also makes life at home better. You know, instead of spending five hours in the kitchen just cooking one pot of beans, you know, the cooker does it. Have to stand. Yes, so families can have at least two meals of food per day. The, when the child goes to school in the morning, they can come home expecting a warm meal. Yeah, that's the beauty with the fireless cooker. Mm -hmm. Is it sometimes difficult for you to like live in these two so different societies in <laughs> Austria and in Uganda? In Uganda, yes. Uh, my life is fun because I get to experience one day I'm in Karamoja somewhere deep down, sleeping in a hut. One day I'm in Austria in a very lovely place and then the other day I'm somewhere else. It's about adjusting because I work with what what is available. For example, if I go to northern Uganda and they give me a charcoal stove and that is all they have to cook food, I'm not going to die just because I don't want to use charcoal. <laughs> I'll use it, but I'll also teach them how to make briquettes, which I've actually you know, taught them. 
and back home in Austria or in Uganda, it's, it's, uh, I think it's trying to maintain a balance because I've also had somebody asking me that you're telling us about saving water, saving electricity. What do you do as a person? And then I had to say, well, when I'm alone in my own apartment in Uganda, I flush the toilet maybe only twice a day because I don't need to use six liters of water every time I go to the toilet because water is a resource. And then I tell them about the fireless cooker that I have in my own house and I tell them about our um, improved stove at Arusha, Uganda. When you visit, I hope you visit Uganda at some point, you will find that in my in our office we have a big improved stove. We are using stones to cook. We don't oh, have to use... Stone. Yes, we're using you know, mm-hmm. the hot stones to cook. And then we also have a fireless cooker. So we've cut down our bills. By our office, we have a water tank tough to harvest the water. Then we also have a garden, Conservation Agriculture Farming God's Way. It's Mm -hmm. all there so that people can see and learn from us. So I think it's about being an example to the rest Mm -hmm. so that what I'm talking, (laughs) what I'm promoting is actually my life. One last question. I've read you lived in a slum in Uganda for several years. Was it by choice for research? Yes, it was a choice. No, Mm -hmm. it was a choice. As I said, it was a choice. Like I said, I'm a very practical person. I I like to start things. So when when I left Austria, I was so excited to go back to Uganda and put in practice what I had learned. And remember, I had also presented, I think I learned about Arusha when I was in Austria, by the way, I'd made a presentation. Austria really is, it's, it's a, it's, it brings good memories. It's one of those places that I think, <laughs> allow me put it this way, I think it's one of those places that I think God allowed me to, to get to know. Because it has, it has not only helped me as a person, but if you read the work on our website, it has impacted thousands of people. But uh, when I went back, I was I was living with my parents. I remember I grew up on a farm. I'd been farming, and then here I was. I was educated. Um, educated, and then I thought, mm, what do I do with all this knowledge? I tried to find a government job. It didn't work. Sometimes you think that because you have read and you have all these experiences and technologies, then they should employ you. But it doesn't work like that. Everybody knows it. They don't. It doesn't work like that. So I, when I went back and couldn't find that government job, couldn't find a teaching position, I thought, hmm, what next? But I always had, anyway, even always had a dream of something to do with the environment. I always knew it's something to do with the environment and my faith. And so when I spoke to the leaders of Arusha International at that time, they encouraged me because they had always wanted to start Arusha Uganda. They told me for 23 years they had been waiting for somebody. I still have that email, very special for me in my life, when I was much younger, of course. (laughs) Uh, Because I wrote, I met them, we spoke, and I said, you know what, Sarah, for 23 years, we've been waiting for somebody to start Arusha Uganda. (laughs) We don't have the money, but we're looking for somebody who has the vision. And I had the vision. You know, I always knew I want to do something with the environment, but I just did not know how. Just like any young person, you have a lot of zeal, but knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) And you make so many mistakes. So once I had their go ahead, I just had this dream and I said, okay, I'm going to start an organization. Since I can't find a job, I'll create one. Because my heart is always out to people. I, am, I think my, I'm more inclined to giving. So I always want to give. And I thought, oh, I have seen poor people. You know, I was like, what do I do? And because I'm a practical person, I want to, I live by example. Yes, I had a home. My parents were always like, you know, now you've studied, go and find a job. I don't know in what ministry, 
but I, I told him, look, I can't find it. We don't know anybody because my parents were poor. We're coming from a very remote area in Mokono. And I told him, look, we are poor. We, you need some connections mm-hmm. or something like that. But what I have is this organization. And people thought I was crazy. You're coming from Austria. You don't have a job and you want to start an NGO. Do you have money? No, I don't have money. What do you have? I only have a computer and my brain. And so I sat down, I wrote a few things, and as, as God would have it, I met somebody who told me, can you do a study on um, what do you want to study? And at that moment, I knew what I wanted. I wanted to do something about the garbage in Kampala because here in Boko, I had learned about waste management. You know, you can sort the waste. Back then for, in Uganda, where I grew up, there was nothing to sort because we were living on a farm, so sorting was like... Sort what? what for? Yeah, you don't need it. But then, you know, as areas urbanize, then you, the plastics come in. Bottles from soft drinks come. And then you have this problem that you are not used to. So I thought, ah, we have to remove the waste. So immediately I told the gentleman that, look, I want to do something about the waste. He was like, but where is the waste coming from? I told him, well, there's a lot of waste in Kampala. There's a lot of waste in urban areas and that sort of thing. So I wrote a short project and about the Kitezi dumping site, which was the only dumping site at that time. So I did a short report about it. He loved it. And then he gave me money to start a project. And then I thought, okay, where do you, where do you see the garbage? It's in the slums. It's coming from the slums. So I found a home and I moved to a slum because I wanted to make a change. (laughs) Now, 20 years later, I'm like, what did I do? But I loved it because it brought me close to the people. Because many times, you know, you're coming from Austria, you're used to, I don't know, trams. In Uganda, we don't have trams. You're used to, you know, just press a button and everything works. Back home, it's not so much like that. But I wanted to put into practice what I had seen. So that is why I moved in the slum. I found a home. I found an empty house and somebody rented it to me. And then so I opened up the office. I was living in the office. Uh, I opened up a garden. I have pictures of what it looked like before and when I left. Mm -hmm. I turned a bare ground into a garden. I was producing vegetables. I was producing things and selling them medicine, medicinal gardens and and so on and so forth. So I went into that community and taught the people about solid waste management and one of the ugly things in Islam is lack of facilities like a toilet. You have flying toilet, toilets. I don't know if you've heard about them. I've heard about them <laughs> from, from India. There's one toilet for 300 yes. people. And so people do their stuff in a plastic bag and just you know send it, it over. So talk about addressing problems. I thought, okay, there, there's not public toilet here. And so we constructed a public toilet and a public bathroom. And then... Although it is a bit crazy that we we have Uganda has a lot of rivers, lakes, and water shouldn't be a problem really. You know, at the surface, when you look at the surface, that you know you have Lake Victoria, the second largest freshwater body lake. You have so many rivers. You know, all these rivers, nobody, everybody should have you know piped water. But sadly, it is not so in the slums. When you go to the slums, people actually still use spring wells. Mm-hmm. So it made sense for me to upgrade the spring wells because you have a latrine close to a spring well. Most of them are contaminated. Mm. But being contaminated doesn't mean that we should condemn it and just, you know, cut it off. Because I have seen areas where there's the pipes are in place, but you don't get the water. So we upgraded spring wells, which we still do, because people still love their spring water. It's a natural resource. You have water flowing 24 hours, <laughs> seven days a week, 365 days a year. 
So it just made sense to protect it for the biodiversity and for the beauty because we love rivers. Rivers are good. And if we can protect them to give us clean water, so be it. And so that is what we did in that community. And then we obviously went to the schools. We taught them how to grow food in old basins, tires on the walls, have vegetables because uh, people in the slum communities are poor. There are people who are running away from the rural areas in search of a better life. So they have very small jobs. So you don't expect them to have good nutrition. But if people are taught, if their eyes are opened, that you can have vegetables, you know, on walls, you can grow them, you can have your spices, you can have your herbs, you can have this. It becomes, it, it's fun. Yeah. It's interesting. So we taught that in schools. And then the other thing is that I also spoke in a number of churches. I think I've been to most of the big churches <laughs> in Kampala because they always had, ah, there's a young woman, she's doing this and that. And then it was so crazy because I was going to the reverends and saying, yes, in your Bible, it is written, God made the earth, he loves it. And so we have to take care of it because he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. So we have to do sustainable land management and we have to do this. <laughs> And I'm happy because um, things have unfolded over the years. I have seen a number of results from several churches. They now have their own project. They have green projects. They have farming God's way. They have they've started fireless cookers, training, training in briquettes. They're growing trees. I think at one point I remember donating over a thousand trees and then we are multiplying fruit trees. Schools, we have we have school clubs. I think now we have I think over a thousand schools if I'm if I'm to keep up with the numbers. The way I know that we have made impact is I was told when I was beginning that a good leader is not somebody who holds on to power, but you empower others. So I started a Russia and I'm so happy that even when I'm away in my absence it is growing. It wow. is running and it is something that is on the wheels. I we we want to go to the rest of Uganda. <laughs> Um, not growing just big for uh, not for the sake of just expanding but really for the sake of making an impact for creating other leaders I really believe in the children because if Uganda is a very young population then tell them what to do now so that when they grow up they know how they make better decisions than the ones that we made so in a little way that is how I'm contributing Okay, and now yes. your defense is, is coming up. You're just yes. about to accomplish your yes. PhD. Yes. What are your plans for your near future after that? I think the plans are, are mixed because I, I'm, I'm planning, I'm hoping that I'll defend. Maybe in, I don't know, February or whenever it happens. But I'm obviously looking for development cooperation projects, which I'm already writing because there is so much to do. I actually think that I have more work than I can be paid for. There's so much research to do. And um, the one thing for sure I'm going to do is carry on my conservation agriculture research, not only in northern Uganda, but also in other, for example, in the southern part of Uganda. Yes, it is going on, but the rate is very slow. And my dream is that we can kind of make it a little bit faster you know if we can double our effort in taking up um, conservation agriculture i want to do more research in that area for example in soils in um, weeds we've talked about weeds in all the aspects Mm -hmm. in machineries because last year i also had the opportunity of presenting my study at the second 
Congress on Conservation Agriculture in Africa. It was like the big meeting of conservation agriculture for Africa. And I was happy. I actually learned, I think, my PhD would be the first in conservation agriculture oh, in wow. Uganda, at least. Okay. At least, maybe. So that opens doors for us as women because I have seen that sometimes women connect better with women in rural areas. So I plan to continue doing more research and more projects, more projects for development cooperation. I also love to speak. And that is something that I probably will do for the rest of my life because I think maybe I'm gifted in that area. But also development cooperation projects here. I've spoken a little bit about my work in Lower Austria and we, we intend to open up some projects with other partners in the US and some farmers here. So I think I have to share my life with, not I don't want to say the world, but I want to do as far as I can really. I don't want to tie down myself to one small little region, but I would like to make impact wherever I can, wherever I'm able to. Yes, so I think the future looks like that. Yeah, you, <laughs> you, you won't get bored. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. Okay, Sarah, thank yes. you very much for being here today and having this talk with me. It was really interesting. So much information, so much okay. power coming from you. Oh. I wish you all the best Thank with you. Defensio and Thank your you. future work. Thank and you. <laughs> this was episode 26 with Sarah Cavesa, agricultural researcher, community worker from Uganda. Thank you. I am Doris Obrecht and you listen to Alumni Audio Lab, a podcast of the OEAD. You can listen to all our former episodes at the website of the OEAD. It's oead.at slash alumni-audiolab. Our next episode will be on air in January 2020. Alumni Audio Lab.